Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hi there, this is The Athletic Football Podcast weekend preview looking ahead to the very best of the Premier League and beyond. Hi there, everyone. I'm Adam Leventhal, and joining me this week is TIFO and Tactics Man John McKenzie. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. Are you good? Yeah, good. Excellent. Investigations and villain Joey Durso. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good to have you on the show once again. And what do I call you, Tim? What do you call yourself when you're introducing people and saying, I work at The Athletic, I'm... Uh, it depends who I'm meeting, really. Mm-hmm. Writer, author... Oh. Podcaster, man of letters, <laughs> depends, depends, yeah, leader, really legend. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's good to have you on board once again, Tim. Good to see you. We're going to be talking about some massive title battles in both Spain and Germany. We've got the Asian Cup and Afcon finals as well uh, to focus on. But the the main thrust, as always, will be the Premier League, and it is a seven-two-one fixture formation this week from Saturday through until Monday. Do you want to hear what the fixtures are in detail? Thank you, Tim. Good. Saturday, 12.30, Manchester City. Second, they have a chance to go top against Everton now in the drop zone. We've got five three o'clocks on Saturday. A couple of mid-tablers. Wolves in 10th against Brentford in 15th. And then Fulham 13th against Bournemouth in 12th. We've got Spurs in fifth against Brighton in eighth. We'll talk about that in a bit. Then a bit of a basement scrap. Luton in 17th against bottom of the lot, Sheffield United, 10 points from safety. Uh, Liverpool, they may well be aiming to regain top spot by the time that they take on Burnley, who are second bottom and seven adrift. Then the Saturday 5.30 is Nottingham Forest, who could be in the drop zone by the time they face Newcastle, who are in ninth. On Sunday, the two o'clock is West Ham. No wins in six for West Ham in all competitions against Arsenal in third. West Ham, though, remember, aiming to do the double on Mikel Arteta's side. The Sunday 4.30 is Aston Villa. Only one win in five in all competitions against Manchester United, who've won three out of their last five, including that 3-2 win against Aston Villa. And then the Monday night football is Crystal Palace in 14th. Roy Hodgson under increasing pressure against Chelsea, Maurizio Pochettino under slightly less pressure after beating Villa in midweek. And we are going to be starting at Villa Park. So let's focus on Aston Villa against Manchester United. That's Sunday 4.30. Villa fourth, 46 points. Man United sixth with 38 points. Contrasting form at the moment. Villa with just that one win in five in all competitions. They were beaten by Chelsea in the FA Cup this week. Two wins out of six in the Premier League. Joe, it's not quite going as well as it was, is it? 
No, it's not. And I think, you know, you've got to caveat this with this is absolutely amazing times to support Villa. You know, Emery has been incredible. I think the last calendar year was the best ever in, in terms of wins for, for Villa team, even in the modern era or potentially ever. So I don't want to be a moaner, but yesterday was pretty bad. Um, the Chelsea result, you know, Chelsea just cut through Villa so many times in that first half, went 2-0 up after 20 minutes. Really, really poor performance. And it's one of those really worrying performances that you can't really pin, you know, point to one player having a mare or a big mistake or a thing the manager tried that didn't quite work. It was just really bad across the board. You know, that midfield of... Kamara, Louise, McGinn that have been fantastical season, offered nothing. Chelsea kept playing through them. The two centre-backs, you know, Villa are really on, running on fumes at the back with obviously Tyro Mings is out long-term. Pau Torres keeps getting injured and Esri Concer, which is a really bad one, is out as well. So the fourth and fifth choice centre-backs, Diego Carlos and Clement Longley, did not play well. You know, it could be a blessing in disguise because Villa are fighting on two fronts as it is, going for the Champions League and the Europa Conference League, which would be massive for Villa if they did win that. So, you know, I'm still pretty feeling pretty positive, but uh, this, this Man United game is huge because there are eight points between them at the moment. And, you know, Manchester United would obviously very much like to get in the Champions League places. If Villa won, it would be 11 points, um, pretty insurmountable. But, you know, if Man United win five points and you'd start to get feeling pretty nervous about making the Champions League. Yeah, it feels like a bit of a bridging fixture, this one, doesn't it, Tim? What do you mean by that? that Manchester United can obviously bridge the gap a little bit closer, can just sort of force the issue, maybe get Villa looking over their shoulders a little bit more worriedly. A bridging fixture. So outside of the TV, <laughs> boffins are going to dub it. Um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. The the, the game at Old Trafford was, was really interesting, obviously with uh, United coming from, what, 2-0 down to 3-2. Yeah. A bit of naivety from Villa in that game, I thought. I watched the game last night, it's crazy. For Chelsea to go from... By all accounts, their most disastrous performance of the season against Wolves at the weekend, booed off at half-time, full-time. Fans really turned. So credit to Pochettino, really, for, for turning that around. It says something about his man management skills, I think. But yeah, Villa, I don't know, it's a shame, really. It would have been Leeds at home in the next round. Yeah. And you fancy them as a decent cup team under Emery. But yeah, it felt like one of those one-game-too-far kind of games. Obviously, they don't rotate as much as some of the teams around them. Uh, and that's becoming maybe a bit of an issue as the weeks drag on. And obviously the, the home form was so formidable and now they've lost against Chelsea, Newcastle. Is, is there anything apart from you know those injury worries that, that you've mentioned and the, the squad being a little bit stretched that, that they've changed in any way that maybe they need well, to sort of get back to? I mean, there's a few players, uh, you know, DRB really hasn't been as good. You know, he was sensational in his first few games. His form's really dropped off. Jacob Ramsey, who's a really important player, has been you know struggling with injuries in and out of the squad. So yeah, I mean, uh, a flip side of that is Leon Bailey, who many Villa fans had pretty much written off as has been amazing. Um, but you know, I mean, if you'd offered you know most Villa fans this yeah. at the start of the season, they'd have bitten your hand off. Um, but it is pretty concerning, particularly that home record of losing by two goals in two consecutive home games. It's not great. In terms of the, the positives for, for Villa, and I think you're right to you know flag the fact that, yes, exceeding expectations, certainly this season. Um, but John, Ollie Watkins is obviously still not necessarily pulling up trees at the moment. It's only two goals in, in his last nine games, but he's someone that they look to for inspiration on, on a constant basis. And he's, he's got some spark about him still, hasn't he? Yeah, I've been doing quite a lot of work on strikers and finishing this season, uh, particularly in the Premier League. And I think Ollie Watkins is quite an interesting case study. One of the 
strikers who's really stood out to me has been Richarlison because Richarlison always takes basically one or two touch shots. Um, he's got 34 in 35 um, non-headed shots, which are in within one or two touches this season, which is incredible. It's like 97% of his shots are with one or two touches. Ollie Watkins, I think, is is quite different stylistically from Richarlison. But I think what you get with Emery is in the same way with Richarlison under Ange Postacoglu, the system is designed to get him getting these repeatable chances where he stays in the right places and these and the, and the ball ends up at his feet. I think the same thing is true under Emery for, for Ollie Watkins, albeit in a, in a quite different way. So Ollie Watkins obviously started out as a wide player um, at the beginning of his career and, and he has that ability to pick the ball up and, and run through or run in behind. They're on record for having having done this, trying to keep Ollie Watkins in between the width of the, the penalty area, getting into these sorts of situations where Villa are going to repeatedly produce chances and he's getting in those areas and scoring. So yeah, I think he's like he's a real beneficiary of the Unai Emery way. You What you get with Emery is... This is the system. We all know what the system is. The system is designed to generate these high value chances in and around the box. And he's the sort of guy who's going to take them. So, yeah, really, really fascinating to, to have to have watched all of his shots this season. And, yeah, he looks really, really potent. What would be a successful season for, for Villa this season, Joey? Well, getting in the Champions League and winning the Europa Conference League would obviously be a huge success. I think the Conference League is absolutely massive for Villa. And obviously, you know, I think fans of other clubs see it as a bit tin pot, you know, potentially with good reason if you're a club that's used to competing in the Champions League, whatever else. But for a team that hasn't been in Europe for 15 years, hasn't won anything of note for 25 years, it would be absolutely huge. And you saw, you know, West Ham last season. And yes, you know, there's a huge financial disparity between Villa and the teams are likely to come up against in the quarterfinals and the semifinals. You know, West Ham against Fiorentina. Fiorentina might be a glamorous name, but they've got a fraction of the budget of West Ham. So Villa should really be, you know, favourites to win that competition. I think the biggest teams are like Lille, Eintracht Frankfurt. And, you know, Villa should be favourites against any of those teams. So they've got a really good chance of winning silverware, which would be an amazing thing. And obviously Champions League would be incredible as well. I think the, you know, the accountants of Villa would very much take the Champions League over the, the Conference League, but fans maybe maybe the opposite. Let's talk about Manchester United, Tim. And I think it's it's only fair that when we've been talking about the pressure that Eric Ten Hag's been under, the fact that, you know, maybe he's not the best communicator, maybe he's making errors in the recent past, mm-hmm. to reflect on the fact that he's actually got them back on track. A couple of good victories against uh, Wolves, against West Ham, three wins out of five. That comeback win that you mentioned against Aston Villa started this run. Do you see this as being a sustainable push now for the, the top four, five? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. You can never tell United. There's always some... But can you tell a bit more about yeah, United there at are the green, moment? There are green shoots yeah. coming through and there's there are, there's the bones of a good team in the short and long term, perhaps, there. Mm. You know, you look at that front three the past few games. I mean, I watched them against West Ham last week, fully expecting Moisey to win his first one at Old Trafford. But um, they, and, and to be fair, West Ham had a lot of the game, much more than I was expecting. It was 22 shots to... 12, but United were, were clinical. And that front three, yeah, Rashford, Garnaccio and Hoyland, who's, who's in form, there's a real sort of pattern of strikers who were woefully out of form at the start of the season, like Richarlison, Mateus Cunha at Wolves and Hoyland, who are, are all prolific now, having gone through very long barren spells. It's good It's good to see with Hoyland because he's, I think he's, he's a likeable guy and um, he's got an awful lot of attributes and an awful lot of pressure on his shoulders, which are, some of which was unfair and relate to his price tag. But, He's um, yeah, they're they're playing some good football. There's a, there's a they're putting out a decent eleven at the moment with um, Mainu and Fernandez and Casemiro as a midfield trio working pretty effectively. The problem is the defence, really. I mean that 
they were so naive in the Wolves game last week when they sort of left three on three at the back when they were three two up with five minutes into five minutes of stoppage time. I couldn't believe what I was seeing really. And obviously they conceded sloppy goals against Newport, against Spurs recently as well. They had Lissandro Martinez back last weekend, his first appearance at Old Trafford since September. And obviously Luke Shaw's back as well. And you're thinking like they've finally got a settled eleven. And then Martinez suffers a really bad injury, knee injury and potentially out for the rest of the season. I haven't heard an update on that this week, but it looked pretty bad. So yeah, you can never tell with United, but this is probably the type of game that will suit them with the form that they're in. And um, yeah, I quite fancy them this weekend. Do the, do the youngsters at United, I mean, Tim mentioned there that it's it's going well now, but they are starting to sort of build a team for maybe the next few years with some of the exciting youngsters that they've got. Who 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 do you, who excites you the most? Yeah, I mean, they've been bailed out by their youngsters in, in recent games, right? And and I think that they've got that the three that were sat on the hoardings at the side of the pitch after, I think, the second goal from Garnacho. Um, so that's Garnacho, Hoyland and Mainu as well. Yeah, an interesting question, like which one of those has the has the highest ceiling? It's, it's, it's difficult to sort of say, I think, because they're, they're obviously all in different positions. I think if Hoyland, you know, consistently becomes a 20 non-penalty goal a season striker, and I think that's well within his the, the grasp of his possibility. You have to sort of argue that that would put him as, as maybe having the highest ceiling of the of the three, despite the fact that I think both of the the other two are incredibly uh, elite players already. Kobe Mainu, only eighteen years old, so still has a little bit of uh, development to do. So maybe with him, I would be a little bit more circumspect on 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 what his ceiling could be. But with Garnaccio, I think Garnaccio, I think is interesting because if, I feel as though he's the one who potentially has the highest ceiling, but also maybe the the lowest floor. I think in in terms of what he offers to Manchester United, he is incredible in these these sorts of transitional games that they're playing. Um, has been really good on both sides of the field, so he can play instead of Rashford or, or with him as well. But I, I have questions about whether or not he will develop the ability to break down blocks, which will at some point, if Manchester United do improve. Uh, will will become an issue. But I think it's well within his possibility to be able to do that. I think if he does, then he could be one of the be best players in one of the best players in the Premier League in his career span. Just before we get to the predictions, quick word from you, Joey, on a crazy article. I mean, you do some fantastic in-depth investigations, but this was a real bizarre one about Manchester United, fake transfers. And I mean, just just tell us all about it because it's one for people to go and read and just try and, and, and believe the craziness of it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a long one on The Athletic. So I'll just summarise it briefly. But Andy Mitten, who obviously writes about Man United, for a long time he's been sending me these sort of extended voice note rants about all the fake news about Man United. And we've been saying, oh, we should do a piece about it. And eventually we you know, banged our heads together and did so. There's basically this huge ecosystem of fake Man United news. And we basically worked out that people are making money from it. People are setting up these Facebook pages, pumping out just fake stories, you know, Man United about to sign Kylian Mbappe, and then linking to a website in which they run Google ads. So they, they, they make money. And I spoke to a student in Nigeria and an Albanian businessman in New York, both of whom that's their line of work, you know, fake news about Man United. And there's lots more weird details, but yeah, you can read about it uh, on The Athletic. And that is actually on The Athletic. That's not fake news. That's, that is true. That's that is true. true. I hope so. It goes through to his website with loads of good yeah, yeah, yeah. ideas on it. <laughs> it's yeah. all part of the con. <laughs> Excellent. Let's get your predictions for this game. Aston Villa against Manchester United. Tim? Um, uh, I think try and, base it, try and base it on something that's going around in your mind that makes sense. <laughs> Uh-oh. Just try. Uh-oh. Uh, 
I think where I'm going wrong is I always try and predict what I want to happen. Ah, yeah, don't and, do that. Do what you think might actually yeah, happen based I'm, on facts and knowledge. God, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. I'm inherently biased against a lot of teams. I really don't mm. like Man United. But yeah. So maybe I'll go for a Man United win then. Okay. 2-1. Two, 2-1. One. Two, one. Joey? I think uh, yeah, it was Emery's first game was a 3-1 win at Villa Park over Man United. Uh, that was the first time that Villa had beat Man United at home since something like 1995. One up the same again, 3-1 Villa. Okay, and John? I don't know, you know. I, th- I think it's... Uh, I think Man United aren't very consistent. And, you know, they yes, they can win games 3-0 against West Ham, but they did that with, what, 0.7 XG. They scored three from 0.7. And look, XG isn't everything. Um, I know I talk about underlying numbers a lot. There's, there's reasons why, you know, you can finish clinically for, for three times in one game and it's not that, it's, it's not that in, in, insane, especially when you are a team like Man United, who, as we've just talked about, they have three players in their, their team who we're describing as potentially world-class at the age under the age of 20, 21. Just they, two numbers, John. They score the first, just they two score numbers, the first goal two and they win 3-0. They concede the first goal and that could have been a completely different game, right? And so it's very hard to predict what, what will happen. In but I'm asking you for a prediction. You are. Uh, I so love how you finished say, the answer by just not predicting a result at all. Well, I was going to, but then he threw me off, you see. He's, <laughs> he started demanding hard, hard figures. Um, I'm going to go with the draw. 2-2. Two, 2-2 two. Two, two draw. Yeah. Thank you. Next, <laughs> let's check in with the champions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So kicking off the weekend, Saturday, 12.30, Manchester City against Everton. Man City, nine wins in a row in all competitions. Uh, They've won their last five in the Premier League. They've had a nice run, though. Everton, uh, Sheffield United, Newcastle, Burnley and Brentford uh, all reaping three points. We don't see Everton stopping them this weekend, do we, Tim? It's it's hard to put a case for them uh, or Sean Dyche whose record against Man City, I mean, you know, you see, you see the Burnley-Man City numbers were flashed up last week with aggregate score of 51 or whatever over the last... Yeah, most of that was Sean Dyche. His, they're his worst team to play against, basically. Uh, according to Transfer Marked, his points per game record against Man City is 0.26. That's one win, two draws in 19. That's um, going to be similar for, to, to a lot, lot of teams, though, isn't it? Yeah, but then, you, yeah, his next worst is 0.5, so it's, it's, it's half as okay. as bad as against anyone else. You did ask him if he thought they were going to win, and yeah. you're saying no, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That seems no, fair no, enough no, I know, to me. But I'm just, I, I don't want to sort of <laughs> beat down Sean Dyche on his bad record against Man City when, when so many other teams have bad records against Man Yeah, City. but it's just unbelievably bad, you know. With the, no, that's fine. If it's if it's particularly particularly bad, then it is yeah. worth yeah. Particularly against Guardiola, that yeah. one win came against Pellegrini a long, long time ago, sort of two thousand fifteen, as did one of the other draws. So otherwise, it's one draw in seventeen. And no, the way that Everton are playing, I mean, they they diced Spurs a bit last week mm. uh, with set pieces and scored two goals from a yard out a piece. But I can't see them doing that to City, particularly the Etihad and the form that City are in. It's really hard to make a case, to be honest. John, can you make a case for for Everton? I mean, Tim mentioning the the set pieces is that something? Is that their only weapon when they're taking on City? I think 
Man City have been a little bit shaky in certain defensive phases this season, which hasn't been talked about that much. And it's easy to look at their at their games and, and the numbers and say, I mean, the the Brentford example is great, right? In, in the midweek, it's just one they had one chance and scored it, but it came from a pretty catastrophic defensive error. And this this season, it feels as though City have gone from being the best team out of possession amongst the elite teams to becoming very average. And a big part of their relative decline this season, I would say, has come off the back of that 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 defensive shakiness. So a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, City are going to get Kevin De Bruyne back and and everything's going to be fixed. And and I, you know, on the one hand, yes, they're, they're going to score a lot more goals and they're going to be able to break teams down a lot, as we saw against Brentford as well with De Bruyne and the team. But I also think that they're only going to roll to the title like they do if they sort out the defensive frailties as well. And I think this season, Everton, we talk about Daesh, Ball. But what, what we've seen from Everton this season is very different from what we expect from Dyche usually. He's he's become a, a, a much more gregarious attacking coach, um, I would say, uh, in his time at Everton. And they're, they're set up to be very transitional, hit on the break. And I think City are weakest in those kind of scenarios. So if they can grab a goal in the way that Brentford did and then, and then find a way of holding on, then, yeah, I, I think there is a way for them to do it. But as Tim says, it's... Um, you're more likely to lose doing that than, than you are to win, which is why Daesh has the record he has. Yeah, especially with Calvert-Lewin, just I think it's 3-19 that he scored. Yeah. And Decore's out. I mean, um, you know, we were saying last week about what a sort of a one-man team they are. Yeah, still missing. And in terms of those transitions and being clinical and taking an, a, a snapshot or a header in the box, you know, he's the man for that really. So, yeah, not going to win. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't sound, doesn't sound that way. And also because Man City in particular have... One player, I mean, they've got so many players, but one player in Phil Foden who's in in great form. And the return of Kevin De Bruyne seems to have, I don't know, maybe just raised him up even even higher. We saw him against Brentford scoring that hat-trick and he's he's just a joy to watch at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, I've watched that game, the Brentford game. He was absolutely brilliant. He's a funny one, Phil Foden, because I think because he was so good so early, you almost forget how good he is. Uh, you know, people were talking about him when he was 18. Yeah, when, particularly with those, the combination of De Bruyne, it was absolutely, you know, some of the most exciting players to watch in the league, you know, but still sort of struggling to get into the England squad, into the England starting lineup, which seems crazy given the form he's in. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't see Everton getting anything out of that. Let's, let's jump out of the, the sort of the Premier League side of things and looking ahead to the Euros, Tim. Is he, is he must start for England? Uh, uh, I mean, Southgate hasn't thought that way in, in the past, but there is there is a, a, an open slot at left forward. Sterling has been the man in the past and is no longer. I think he might have forced his way in had he continued his form of sort of early months of the season, but it seems like he's tailed off mm. and there's obviously something going on between him and Southgate. So there have been a few contenders to sort of just take Sterling's spot. Rashford, who as we know has been very inconsistent. Grealish, who's sort of on the back burner this season, injury issues and form issues. He's tried Madison there a few times, but that's that's playing him out of position for me. I think Madison is your backup to Bellingham, and he's probably the most unlucky one that's going to miss out on the team. So yeah, Foden, if fit and and playing as he is, a left forward isn't his best position either. I don't think, but I think I think that's where he'll play, and I think that's where he'll start for England. It'll be him, Saka on the right, and, and Kane up front. If if the tournament was tomorrow, that's how you'd start. Quick predictions for Manchester City against Everton. John, a score three one. 3-1 City. Only 3-1? Yeah. Okay. Joey? 1-0 uh, City. Oh. Just thought I'd mix things up a bit. <laughs> and Tim? 4-0. 4-0. Brilliant. 
thank you very much. Let's just cast an eye on our two North London clubs next. Right, so let's deal with Tottenham and Arsenal. First, Tottenham up against Brighton. Uh, Son is going to be back for Spurs, is he, Tim? Yeah, but, you know, given all the emotional and physical exertions of uh, the Asian Cup in the past few weeks, I don't, I don't know if he's an automatic starter, particularly given, you know, late coming back, not training with the squad for a while, and Spurs are, Spurs are pretty good up front at the moment. Mm. So it's, it's Werner, it's Richarlison, pretty much the most informed striker in the Premier League. And then sort of Kulisevsky or Johnson on the right. So, yeah, maybe you're coming for Werner, but then it's pretty rare that Son's on the bench. You don't really see it that often. Yeah. So I guess they'll see what, what state he's in, to be honest. He played a lot. Of, they had a couple of extra time games, lots of late exertions, late goals out in the Asian Cup. And, uh, yeah, on Tuesday they lost in the semis to Jordan. So he's back anyway. That's not a very definitive answer, is it, really? But Well, no, but it's interesting because you'd think in previous years... All right, Son's back. We've got to get him. Got to get him straight back. So it is a. It's a reminder that Ange Postecoglou has sort of nurtured that that Spurs team, and that they're, yeah. they're playing and not having to rely on. Obviously, Kane has gone. Son has gone. So it just shows a bit of an evolution, doesn't it? Yeah, it speaks to the to the strength and depth. It speaks to the the form of the front players at the moment. I guess as soon as he's captain and, and their talisman, you, yeah, I've, I'm talking myself into him starting. <laughs> He'll now. probably start. Yeah. <laughs> He'll probably start. But we shall see. But it's not. It doesn't. He doesn't have to start. Mm-hmm. They're not desperate for him. Um, interesting that we saw a, a four-two victory for Brighton in the reverse game. Hopefully, this will be a, a festival of football with more goals once again, and the, the statistics point towards that. With Spurs, I think only one clean sheet since October. Brighton only two clean sheets all season. A nice dovetailing of styles, this, or a clash? Yeah, I think the reason why both teams are not getting clean sheets are quite different. I think Spurs, everyone's talking at the moment about Spurs not having the ability to control games. Um, Postacoglu has them playing this really exciting, flamboyant, direct football where you're you know constantly attacking. The problem is, is when you're going goals up, um, it, you, you do have to be able to control the game without having to constantly try and attack, right? It's much easier to retain possession when you're not constantly trying to put the ball in the opposition's net. And I think that has led to Spurs maybe dropping points a few times more recently or looking like they struggle. So even the Brentford game, like there was a period where I think it was, it was a very short period where they scored their three goals in that game. Uh, and in the first half, they looked like they couldn't control the game at all. Same with, with Everton. As the game drew on, Everton were just sort of squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. And yes, they got the goal from a set piece, but there was plenty of chances before that, I think, where they could have uh, nicked one as well. So with with Spurs, the question is, how do you control the game in the moments where you're not trying to score? How do you stop the opposition from having the ball? Because if you're constantly attacking, you can often give the ball back to the opposition. You can then they can then attack you. Whereas Brighton have no problems with control at all. I'd say they're, they're very very good at their in their low build-up phase. They, you know, they do that Beatty stuff where they just play it around the back and try and find these these outlets to move the ball. But where they've been struggling this season is in defensive transition because they've lost Alexis McAllister, they've lost Moises Caicedo, two, uh, two very elite centre midfielders because not only can they do the technical build-up stuff, they can also defend in transition, which they often have to do for, for Brighton. They've now got Billy Gilmore and someone else in, the, in, in that central midfield offering a lot less resi- resistance when the opposition win the ball back and then and then transition back towards you. So, yeah, I think th- this one is going to be fascinating because Spurs are going to cause 
Brighton problems in transition, Brighton are probably going to control the game. So, uh, yeah, I think a festival of football is how I would describe it. But then my proclivities are, you know, unique. So maybe maybe the rest of the, the world won't find that. But I think there'll be a lot, of, um, a lot of chances, which is what people like, don't they? Well, you get you get excited over a, a really tedious nil nil, don't you? So that's that's. <laughs> I, that's um, I think that's a you know that's a common misconception. I don't necessarily enjoy a nil nil. No, okay, no, fine. not really. No, I like I like a goal. I don't like goals when it's like bad defending that leads to a goal. But if if a goal is well worked, I'm I'm not going to be like I'm not Liam Tharm. Liam Tharm hates, hates when goals. teams don't. Yeah, they he hates goals and when teams don't keep clean sheets. Whereas for me, I'm like I don't care as long as you win. Yeah, winning is the important thing. We want goals, don't we? Um, we just a, a quick one to you, Tim, if I may. And it's a bit of a random one. Obviously, Jurgen Klopp leaving Liverpool at the end of the season. Roberto De Zerbi and Ange Postacoglu sort of been mentioned in the conversation about who might potentially go in at Liverpool. And I think we're all thinking that it's going to be Xavi Alonso from Bayer Leverkusen anyway. But do you see this as a sort of a battle in some way between two likely candidates or not? Um, that's hard to answer un- unless we know what Liverpool are looking for in their next head coach because De Zerbi and Ange Postacoglu play the same football wherever they go. So that's what Liverpool would have to want from their from their next manager, basically. Um, and the fact that Klopp's coaching staff are all leaving at the same time suggests they might be looking for something different, in my opinion. You know, Pep Linders is off and... The, the the official word was that he wants to go and pursue his managerial career. Liverpool clearly don't think that he's the man for them. So, I don't know. There, there's a lot up in the air about it. I don't think Xabi Alonso is a shoe in for it. And I think there are some reasons why it shouldn't be him. And just the fact that he you know last played for Liverpool in 2009 um, and has some kind of emotional tie. I, th- I think it's an awful way to conduct business. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? He's shown he's a, he's a really good manager. Yeah, in half a season. Well, not only half a season. No, no, but if you're going in to, to build on a dynasty, almost, which is what mm. Klopp has built, you need a bit more evidence than that. And if he'd played for Man City instead of Liverpool back in the 2000s, you know, would we even be talking about him? So I get it. It's Liverpool and they do they do have emotional uh, ties to certain players and they like the continuation of knowing the club. And maybe it is important, you know. I'm not, I'm not in and around of course, so I don't know. But yeah, that's... I think it's probably been proven in the past that if you just go for a former player, not necessarily destined to work. Yeah. Okay. Who was the last manager, big manager, who was a former player who really Guardiola worked? at Barcelona, who's quite good. Uh, I mm. guess so, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of more He's failures. He's been pretty there. good at other places where he yeah. was as well, right? I guess. It's the kind of exception that proves the rule, isn't it? Yeah. Let's um, get a quick prediction on uh, Spurs-Brighton. Tim? I think, I, you know, I agree with John. I think it's, gonna be, it's a shame it's not on telly because... That and Villa and Man United are the two two games I'd really want to watch this weekend. So yeah, I think um, I think Spurs win three one. Joey, I'll go two two. John, I'll go Brighton two one. Brighton two one. Okay, yeah, good, interesting. Um, and I wanted to just have a quick word about Arsenal at West Ham on Sunday. They've won three on the bounce after it was looking pretty dicey for them. Big win against Liverpool, obviously criticism about how they celebrated and all that jazz. But it's got them back into the the title race proper now, hasn't it? I think so, yeah. The the title race this season is funny, right? Because we're so used to City just being miles ahead at this point uh, or starting to grind at this point. Um, And I don't think we're quite there yet. As I said before, like maybe City will start to roll, but I want to see... 
evidence that that's going to happen before I say, OK, it's happened. And the result of that is that it's meant that Liverpool and Arsenal are in, in the title race by hook or by crook. And with, with Liverpool and Arsenal, you have two very different teams, I think, with well, Arsenal, a team who are very much defence first. With elite players who can who can score, they stay in games long enough and get their goals. Whereas Liverpool, it feels as though they're they're blowing a lot of teams away lower low down the table. And yeah, maybe coming up against a team like Arsenal in that game, they they struggle a bit more. So I think it's like the, the title challenge is really nicely set mm. um, because there's no absolutes in it at this point. And um, I wouldn't like to call it either way, but yeah, definitely Arsenal, definitely right up there. And it's interesting that West Ham haven't won since they won at the Emirates, 2-0, which was quite a surprise result. Four draws in that time in all competitions, but they lost against Bristol City. They lost last time out against Manchester United. They're still seventh. Are they still dangerous or are they just sort of waiting to drop or waiting to catch light? I, don't, I can't quite pick them at the moment. Don't, they don't strike me as dangerous in, in, in many ways. I, I, think, I think Moyes has done a good, consistent job to get them where they are, but they don't, they're not a particularly exciting team to watch. Calvin Phillips... <laughs> He's not. Yeah, he came on at Old Trafford last week, and ten minutes after he came on, he, he gave the ball away, which direct, almost directly led to their third goal. So that's two appearances and two times he's given the ball away for a goal, which isn't great. And yeah, in, it, they played some decent football against United, but they were just sort of powder puff in, in attack, really. Um, if Kudus and Bowen aren't scoring the goals, I don't know who does really. So um, yeah, a few. They don't. They don't particularly get my juices going, Adam. To be honest. Okay, fair enough. I, I, that, that Arsenal West Ham game at the Emirates was a really weird one. It finished two 0 to to West Ham, but Arsenal had thirty shots and two point xg and didn't score. So that was a real sort of freak result. So it doesn't necessarily show that West Ham are going to go and do a job on them at the return. They've won twice right now this season against uh, against Arsenal. Right, West Ham. They won in they the, won the Cup two. Yeah, so. It's, it's clearly becoming a bit of a bogey team bit for them. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they, they play out. But That said, what's the score going to be? Oh, yeah, Arsenal win 2 0. Arsenal will win 2 0. I'll go 3 0. I'll go 1 0. Okay. Thank you very much. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. So, yes, let's depart from the Premier League and some really juicy fixtures in both Spain and Germany. Where would you like to start, John? Spain or Germany? I don't mind. Let's start Spain. Spain. So, Real Madrid up against Girona. Real Madrid atop, 58 points. Girona second. And still, you can still call them the surprise package of La Liga. Second with 56 points. Girona have only lost once all season, and that was 
to Real Madrid. Which way is this one going, do you think, John? It's hard to say. It's the, the Girona have been fantastic this this season and there's a lot of people saying, oh, you know, could they could they do it? Um, they've already lost to Real Madrid, as you say, and they're still in the title race. And they're, you know, they've they've managed to pull it out of the bag a few times and, and they've kept neck and neck with Real Madrid the whole season. And look, Real Madrid aren't necessarily hugely convincing at the moment. They are having to pull things out of the bag themselves. But yeah, fantastic to watch. Would recommend if you get the chance to watch Girona play because just really, really fantastic um, team. They have some really nice players. They had an incredible um, transfer window. They brought in a, a number of players. So players like Daly Blint and Eric Garcia from Barcelona, the players who maybe people thought weren't ever going to make it. Or, you know, obviously, Daly Blint had made it, but was coming to the end of his career. Mm. Um, so they brought in a few sort of misfits and, and fit them in. Uh, they've got some... City Football Group rejects as well in in players like Alex Garcia. And we've also got players like Savio, who are from within the City Football Group. It's just been announced this week that he's moving to Manchester City next season. So the real mismatch of bringing in all of these different types of, of players. But what I love about them is they, they're so, they have so much flexibility. They can play with the back three, they can play with the back four. They have really creative ways of, of being able to build up. They're very, again, flamboyant. They love, you know, just carrying the ball forward. They, they have like really advanced inverting fullbacks in the same way that Spurs do, particularly in Mikel Gutierrez, who's a fantastic player. And they just, yeah, they 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 just go out to score goals, and and quite often they do. And all of all of this is against the background of the fact that you know they were only uh, promoted the season before, so they had one season of of staying in the league, and now they're they're taking on the title challenge. And um, Mikel, their coach, has has had a history of taking teams up from the Segunda to the um, to the. La Liga full but then immediately them going down this is the first time he's kept a team up and then rather than going the other way they've 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 headed straight on up to to this title challenge so very very exciting football very very exciting players and um yeah if they win this game the title challenge is, is still on and um I think there's a lot of people who want to believe that you know the big teams don't win every league every year and uh, it would be great to see them do it it's also tight in germany um, we mentioned Xavi Alonso a few moments ago. He is the manager of Bayer Leverkusen. They're top 52 points. Bayern Munich are second with 50 points. And amazingly, Leverkusen are unbeaten this season. And it was interesting as well. They beat Stuttgart uh, in the German Cup in midweek, played a full-strength side. It was almost like, come on, go out there, show, show me what you've got, and then you can play against... Uh, by Munich this weekend. It was a it was a sort of a bold bold approach, and it it may well reap rewards. Yeah, th this is a really interesting title challenge, I think, because Bayer Leverkusen is very different to Girona insofar as you know they're one of the biggest clubs in in Germany, at least per finances. But they just never quite hit the level that people expect of them. But what we've started seeing under Xabi Alonso is that they are now they are now doing that. So Xabi Alonso joined the season prior and had a sort of middling season with them, never really quite clicked for them. And then again, they had a really great transfer window. They brought in a few players they really needed, so they brought in. Uh, Alex Grimaldo, who was from, I think, from Benfica, but he, they now play him as a left wing back. Um, they brought in Jonas Hoffman, who no one expected. He's another sort of end of career player who has, has unlocked Jeremy Frimpong. Um, they brought in Victor Boniface and they brought in Granit Xhaka as well. And those players have just filled the needs that they had in their squad. And yeah, this season they just look absolutely great. Really, really nice um, uh, approach to football because they do all of the sort of patient build up that you expect from possession teams. But what they then do is they get into these scenarios where they can change 
change the tempo really quickly, pass the ball, one-touch passing through channels of players uh, and, and then generate really exciting goals in that way as well. And they're the better team out of, I would say, uh, Leverkusen and, and Bayern this season, which is pretty unusual, not least because Bayern have all of the stars, particularly in the, in front, in, in the front of their, of their team. And um, yeah, Bayern are getting through by relying on Harry Kane or relying on Leroy Sané and Jamal Musiala as well. But with with Leverkusen, they're so you know, they're such a coherent team that they are they're just consistently getting wins. And so yeah, if 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 Leverkusen can hold on for this game, even just a draw, I think would make it really much uh, uh, a title a challenge in their favour. They are missing a few players. They've had a few players away at Afcon, um, and they've got a few injuries as well. Um, so it will be interesting to see how they they um, shape up at the weekend. But um, really hoping that this one comes through for them because I think that would put them in pole position for the the league. A lot of focus, obviously, for, for Bayern Munich will be on um, Harry Kane. If you haven't been following his form, he is in wonderful goal-scoring form, 24 in 20. And he's actually chasing Robert Lewandowski's all-time Bundesliga goal-scoring record of 41. So, yeah, two great games in both Spain and Germany, meetings of the top two. And we'll have continued coverage on The Athletic uh, with our team of writers, respectively, in Spain and Germany. Let's talk about the international finals as well. I'm going to cross over to uh, our Asian Cup correspondent, Tim Spears. You were talking about Son earlier on. Obviously, people were expecting South Korea to make the final, but they lost against Jordan and they're taking on the hosts, Qatar. Um, Saturday, three o'clock. Are you going to be watching? Yeah, do you know, I might do. Um, well, I've got a Trilla TV subscription. Have you? Uh, I, you know what? <laughs> I was doing the daily football briefing the other day and I was looking at the, uh, you know, we, we tell people where the, where the games are going to be on. And I yeah. saw Trilla TV. I yeah. genuinely had not a clue what it was. And I didn't even mention it because I didn't know what it was I at all. I think it's predominantly either wrestling or UFC, something that isn't a Yeah, sport. not my bag, really. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm signed up to the seven-day free trial. Are so you? I could watch the Excellent. semis. So maybe I'll watch the final as well. Yeah, the, sem uh, the semi I watched in, in the week was amazing. Jordan against South Korea. A real sort of David versus Goliath clash. Jordan had never beaten South Korea. And not only did they beat them, they beat them 2-0. South Korea didn't have a single shot on target, which is the first time that's ever happened to them in the competition's history. And, uh, yeah, Jürgen Klinsmann um, utterly uh, humiliated, really, and lambasted back home for a variety of reasons. So they're, they're the sort of big story in that they've, you know, they really should have won this tournament for the first time since 1960, with all the other favourites having uh, departed the competition. But the fairy tale side of it is Jordan, who have never reached a semi-final in their history, uh, and are in the final. They're managed by Moroccan um, Hussein Amouta, and it sort of they remind me of Morocco's run to the semis of the yeah. World Cup. Actually, they're, they're extremely disciplined, very aggressive press. Uh, they've only got one player who plays in Europe, Moussa El Tamari, who plays for Montpellier, got a goal and assist the other day, and they play Qatar in the final. Qatar are the hosts. They won it last time. Uh, so they're looking for their second Asian Cup in a row, which is quite surprising, but I guess they've had a lot of investment in the past few years, you know, around the World Cup. Um, and it'll be an incredible atmosphere. Jordan's not too far away, and they were there was an extremely partisan crowd for the semi-final in midweek. It'll be, um, it'll be worth watching, for sure, on As, Trailer TV. On Trailer TV, we're giving them free publicity. Um, obviously, then, you also have the, the AFCON final, which is on Sunday at 8 o'clock. Nigeria up against Ivory Coast, the hosts. Nigeria, I think, have just sort of steadily made their way to the final. Ivory Coast has been just 
just drama all the way. It's going to be a great final, isn't it? Yeah, well, I watched the, the Nigeria-South Africa game yesterday. It was an amazing game. I mean... The conclusion um, of it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah. so so Nigeria, obviously, massive favourites. Victor Ozzyman, a bunch of Premier League players. South Africa, you know, not household names in there at all. Um, but they started really well. They had some good chances in the first half. Nigeria went 1-0 up, and then it was the 88th minute... Victor Ozzyman scores and you think, okay, 2-0, that's the kind of result you expect. They're all celebrating, all their fans are going crazy. And then you sort of see that the referee has flagged something that I didn't see in real time. A penalty to South Africa, which they then scored and then very nearly scored a winner in, in the last minute. And then there was a red card to South Africa late on. Nigeria won the shootout. Ian Acho scored the winning penalty. So it was high drama. Ivory Coast game a bit less dramatic, sort of fluky goal which bounced off the floor and over the keeper from um, Sebastian Haller. It's obviously a great story there because he was very ill. But yeah, very exciting final. You know, Nigeria, the sort of team that lots of other African teams love to beat and then the hosts in, in Ivory Coast. So yeah, very excited about that. Obviously, there are bigger things about Nigeria that makes make them interesting. But the one thing that I do like about them is that William Trooster Kong, their captain, central defender, takes their pens. It always looks a bit odd, but I he like always that. does well. He does yeah, well. Former, yeah. former Watford? Former, Watford? Former Watford, yeah. yeah former yeah. Watford. So we've got nice kits as well in Nigeria, I thought, though. Kits, lovely. Yeah. Tradition, traditionally, they've always had snazzy mm. kits, haven't they, yeah. uh, Nigeria? Right, well, that is it. Oh, and by the way, there is a... Uh, an in-depth episode of the Athletic Football Podcast talking about this AFCON, which has been a great tournament. And you can uh, check that one out with Io and Jay Harris and Sol Bamba also are on that podcast. And I pop up as well, uh, talking about Samueletto and some of the, the more unsavoury uh, headlines that have come out of this AFCON as well. Uh, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. Joey, thank you. Thanks. John, thank you to you as well. It's been a pleasure. As always. Hmm. Um, thank you very much for listening. Io's going to be back on Monday and we will be back with another weekend preview next week. Thank you very much for listening. The Athletic.